Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the show Dr. Mustafa Sultan, also known as Musti. Musti is a UK-based doctor and the creator of the podcast Big Picture Medicine. On his show, he discusses health entrepreneurship, interviewing health and biotech entrepreneurs and leaders. Alongside running the podcast, Musti is currently locuming as an SHO in the UK. He talks to us about the process of podcasting and growing his brand, as well as his unique approach to medicine and balancing clinical work with entrepreneurship. Hi, Musti. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. You're our first international guest for the season, so we're very excited <laughs> to have you on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really hyped. I want to give our listeners a bit of a snapshot of who you are and what you're currently working on. So can you describe what you're currently doing work-wise? Yeah, of course. I think the beauty of medicine is that you can live this kind of post-economic lifestyle. This is a term used in like tech Twitter a lot, where people basically become really successful, earn loads of money, and then they stop working or they work as much as they want to. And I'm definitely not at that stage. But one of the beauties of medicine is that very early in your career, you can what we call locum, I think it's called different terms across the world. But essentially, you get to a stage in your training where you're like a fully qualified doctor, and you can pick and choose shifts and earn like a decent amount of money from doing them. So I'm at that stage. I refer to myself as either fun employed or post-economic. It depends how much I'm trying to impress the other person. But I work two to three days a week in A&E and across psychiatry flexibly. It's lots of fun. I think it's a lot more fun sort of dipping in and out of medicine or like in quotes, like playing doctor. I think medicine's really fun, like two or three days a week. But then when it gets to five or six, I think it gets really too much. So it's the perfect blend. And then the rest of my time, I spend doing various side bits. And the main one of those is I do the Big Picture Medicine podcast. My goal with that was to basically make the best health entrepreneurship podcast that exists. I was really inspired by actually Christopher Nolan. I remember reading an interview or an autobiography from him. And he said something like, when he made his first film, do you know, have you seen Memento, the film? No, I'm not a oh, film buff, should... the wrong person. <laughs> you should definitely watch that. But that was like his first breakout film. And it's like my favorite film. Afterwards, when he got interviewed about it and how it, his first film was so good, he just said that, I thought when everyone makes a film, they try and make the best film ever made. And I really like that attitude. And that's like, I've tried to apply 10% of that to podcasting. I listen to things like Tim Ferriss, Guy Raz, all the greats in podcasting. And I thought like, why is no one trying to do this in health and bio? And I'm like, I'm not there yet. I think of myself as three or a four out of 10, and I want to get to an eight or a nine. But that's what I've been doing the past three or four years with most of my time. Amazing. I want to focus a bit on the medicine side of things for now, and then we can go deep on the podcasting stuff. But what actually drew you to medicine and med school in the first place? Yeah, again, there's this quote, which is like, if you want the story of the son, look at the father. And my parents came from Pakistan to the UK. And I always admired that because they came here and they didn't know anyone. They didn't really speak the language that well. And then my dad went on to become a consultant in the NHS and do phenomenally well. And I was always very proud of that. And then I looked at myself and I was like, wow, like I've got this like silver spoon rammed in my mouth. I'm born in the UK, native English speaker. I've got so much opportunity. And so becoming a doctor, if I'm completely honest with you, it just felt like the thing that I need to do, like just to even 
hit baseline. If he did it coming from Pakistan, then I'm in the UK now. Like I need to do that and then I need to do more. So it always felt like that was the first thing I needed to do, like the first checkbox in life. And to be honest, it was actually quite difficult. A lot of, I think, medics are like high performers and top of their class and everything. And like I was okay, but they seem to describe it as being really easy or really fun. And I actually thought it was pretty difficult. It took me two rounds to get in. Even when I got in, like didn't find it easy at all. But yeah, then I got through and then I got a bit distracted. But basically, that's the story. (laughs) How did you find your junior doctor years? I imagine they were working a lot harder than the two to three days a week that you're doing now. Yeah, they were interesting. In some ways, they were very cool. I think it does sometimes feel like you're in a documentary or like we have these shows. I'm sure you have them in Australia, like 24 hours in A&E. And I think that's the cool part of medicine. It's like a lot of careers, like you watch Suits, like that, the, the show on Lawyers. And you will glorify law and think, wow, it's so cool. Like Harvey Specter's going in doing these cool deals and he drives a Ferrari or whatever. But the real life, as you know, in law is like, it's not like that at all. It's, it's really boring. But I think medicine is actually quite similar to how you see it described on TV shows. And I think that's one of the cool elements. I think it felt amazing when someone comes in and you use your brain to basically work out what's going wrong and fix them. And like, they are so impressed by you, even though the only thing I've done is like, diagnose a UTI. Like they, they think you're like, they think you're sick and you've actually helped them out. That was super cool. I didn't enjoy a lot of elements of it. I felt like I was treated like a kid. And this is a thing that's brought up. And I think the counter argument to this is that like millennials are so like up themselves and they're not willing to put in the graft or they're not willing to kind of start at the bottom and work their way to the top. They're very entitled. And that is definitely true with me. But I do think there is this feeling when you come in and you're like doing a ward round and your only purpose there is to write down the notes as quickly as possible. And if you don't write them in the right time, you get shouted at. I was like, this is, I have a very high opinion of myself. So it didn't really sit with me. (laughs) So I was like, what is this? And then I looked at the consultants and the people at the top around me of that game. And I just thought that's not really what I want. So yeah, it was really fun. I'm really glad I did it, but I ultimately decided not for me. Do you think that from here you're going to go and do medical training or do you want to keep doing similar sorts of stuff to what you're doing? Or is that too big of a question to be asking at the moment? (laughs) No, I think I'm out of medical training. I think there could be at some point a return to medical training, especially if there's some path that I need to go after. I find some parts of medicine really interesting, like the preventative side, the longevity side of things. I think that's really cool. And that would involve doing more medical training. But for now, I can't imagine spending years of my life doing it. I don't really find it that exciting. I also don't think it's like the thing I'm really good at. And I don't see the point of spending decades on something that like I'm going to be average at or just above average at. Like I really want to, if I'm going to do something, I want to be like really good at it and like really love it. So you're going to spend, what is it, a third of your like conscious hours working. So it just seems obvious to me that some people are like, you know, you've spent so long trying to get into this. Like, why are you leaving now and it's just like well in relative terms it's not been that much of my life and I've got a third of my existence or conscious hours going forward to spend doing what I do for work so it seems obvious to me that it's the time to leave. <laughs> mm. I've thought that so many times that if I'd done mm. something else I would have been could have been top of the game but in med there's just doesn't <laughs> feel like there's a chance. I think that's really. growing up academically gifted you just set yourself up to have too high expectations of yourself forever. Absolutely yeah definitely. I'm interested how you first got into digital health and where the podcast came, which one came first? 
I was always growing up and still kind of am like the fat kid, but I was also a bit social, like talking to people, like finding out about stuff. I was always making like mini documentaries, like that was my thing or setting up websites. And so I always had a bit of a sort of fascination. To be honest, there was a year. So I went to study in Newcastle, which is, I, I think there's one in Australia as well, but this is the UK, Newcastle upon Tyne, the best one, the original. And <laughs> I'd spent a year doing basically what was an MBA or like a management degree down in London at Imperial. You can take a year out and do a different degree. And I was in London and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. I need to talk to everyone. And so the classic thing of reaching out to people for coffees, trying to just pick their brain, which, you know, in hindsight, isn't the best way to get people to meet you. But some people did. I've got a terrible memory. So then was like, why don't I make notes? And then I was like, okay, well, actually, why don't I just record it and publish it? But then I very quickly after doing that, I started to realize that the thing I was doing as a side piece of recording the conversation or making notes, that should actually be, be the main thing because it actually opens up a lot of opportunity because the minute you hit record, you've turned this like one conversation to something that's scaled as going to thousands of people. And that actually opens up doors. Suddenly, you're not just like the one student trying to pick someone's brain. You're in fact broadcasting this to many, many people. And that can actually, once you hit some sort of scale, that can actually deliver benefits to the person you're speaking to as well. Not only that is that legitimizes what you're doing. It makes you less, it puts you in a different position. You're less like the annoying student. You're more like the podcast host or whatever. So I quickly realized that, okay, I need to take this more seriously. And there's a path here and this can snowball into something bigger. So like, that's how it started. Hmm. That sounds amazing. I think a lot of people would have had a similar sort of idea, but not actually followed through with it. What made you think that was the right thing for you to do or you were the right person to do this? To be honest, Elise, um, throughout my life, I've always been someone who has six-month hobbies. Like my parents used to joke that I would buy like a fish tank and then six months later, I'd be back in the fish shop, like giving them the fish back, please take them. I can't do this anymore sort of thing. And there's a whole thing about just turning up every week and just keep on doing it. And I think that is true. Like I did try and do that. But fundamentally, I don't think anyone can carry on something unless they're getting like assistant sort of dopamine hit whenever they do it. And for me, that is that every week I have a conversation, I edit it and I produce something and put something out into the world that I feel proud of. It's almost like a piece of art. I'm like, I look at it at the end, I'm like, this is sick. I'm so happy with this. So I think that's basically what keeps me going. It's like the constant drip of dopamine. And I think that with any creative endeavor, if you can find that what your drip is, that's very beneficial. The second thing is I genuinely see a long goal with it. It just makes so much sense to me that I've been doing this for three years. If I do it for 10 years, I can see the exponential curve. And it just seems really obvious to me. And it seems really stupid to stop doing it. And last thing, yeah, it's fun as well. <laughs> mm. I feel like very few people are that driven by their work and that organically motivated. Finding something that actually makes you feel that way and makes it easy to stick to it from the sounds of things. No, it's true. And unfortunately, this is my thing. I wish I was more sort of dedicated to more useful activities like programming or research or something like that. But unfortunately, my thing is I like putting podcasts out on the internet and that's my that's where I derive all my self-worth and such. Mm. I'm interested because you mentioned just now that you did a MBA sort of program. But when I listen to your podcast, I think, how does he know all of this sort of stuff? Like it's not stuff that you learn in medical school. Was it a lot of it the business side of things, the entrepreneurship side of things, was that self-taught or interest-driven or was that courses that you've done? 
Well, at least that's very flattering. Uh, a lot of times I literally feel so stupid. Like I literally walk, uh, some, some of these people I speak to, I'm just like, oh, like I sound like an idiot. Like I shouldn't, okay, if I minimize the number of words I say, I'll sound less stupid. And so uh, it's really nice to hear that to someone I don't, I don't sound like that. To be honest, the MBA type program was really useful in just giving the grounding, like the basics. It's almost like in medicine when you do the cell biology and the biochemistry and you just fundamentally need to understand like what osmosis is, right? You basically fundamentally need to know that. But beyond that, and not to say that I'm like so well versed in it, but I honestly think Twitter is the most like underrated resource in the world. I think it's so underrated. Like you essentially have like CEOs, business leaders, scientists, like they're publishing their preprints, stuff that's not in medical journals yet. They're posting their like shower thoughts, like everything is there and these discussions are happening. So I think just like fly on the wall and watching that happen has been really beneficial. And another thing I realized, like I noticed that I have a very different approach to medicine and like these other side interests. Like in medicine, unfortunately, I noticed that you know, a patient comes in and you're clocking them and they're on maybe like an eye drop or something and you don't really know what it is. Like, you know, it's like a, like a mild thing. It's, it's not really a proper medicine. It's just like a really like mild eye drop. And you like, you don't research it because you don't really know what the mechanism is. You don't really know what it is. You just know, okay, it's safe. I'll prescribe it. That's me done. And that's like a bad attitude fundamentally. I think the person who gets ahead in medicine is the person who like then researches it, goes on Wikipedia, find out the mechanism. And then next time it comes up, they like know everything about it. Like I'm not that person. On this other side, like when I speak to someone or I find someone like I literally like there's a bit of like an insecurity or there's a bit of like a desire or like an ego thing. Like I want to know exactly what you're talking about. Like I feel dumb right now and like I don't want to feel like that again. So I'm going to research it. So I think it's very much like the attitude that you bring right to the table. And like we all have things that we bring the good attitude to and then the bad attitude to. I definitely couldn't do your podcast. I'd need to do a lot of research before I did your podcast. So. Uh, no, no, you're definitely good. <laughs> what else have you learned from the podcasting process and the you've built a business and a brand alongside it? I feel like that must have been quite a different journey to your medical career. Is there any key learnings from that? Yeah, there are a lot of key learnings. Let me give you one around the process and maybe one from the guests themselves. I think the really big lesson I learned from speaking to loads of guests and not to like toot my own horn, but just to give you like an uh, example of like the great people I've spoken to, like some of uh, like literally billionaires and like the medical director, like partners at some of the biggest like investment firms, um, some of the most cited scientists in history. Like these are like A team players. And from these people, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that they are just normal people. I was like, that was, that's such a like weird thing to say. And then maybe it sounds like it came off a fortune cookie, but I really realized that whoever you think is the most successful person in your niche or whoever is like your hero, if you sit down with them for like a bit of time, you'll very quickly realize that like, it's not like they're like Albert Einstein or like they're like operating in, for, in, in the fourth dimension. They're like normal people who I don't think they're like, so it's not because they're so gifted or they, they're speaking Mandarin and you're speaking English. It's not really like that. They're just normal people. I think I noticed this when I spoke to some, you know, I won't name them, but like really impressive people. And like they fumbled their words and they got nervous and they said stuff and they emailed me after like, oh, I feel, I don't like how I said that. I don't feel good about that. And you like, you notice like these, all these people, they're like, they're insecure. They feel stupid sometimes. And I think the common thread amongst all of them is that they just like put the graft in over a long period of time. I think that's literally it. They picked something they're good at and they've consistently worked towards it. And they're like, they're hard workers. That's literally the biggest lesson I've learned. In terms of the actual process, 
I think what I learned is that it's very easy to keep something going for like six months. And like whether this is whether it's like a research project, whether it's like clinical medicine, whether it's a creative project or a business, like it's very fun. Like when you first start out, everyone's like sending you fire emojis, like great job, love it. And then after a year, like not even like your best friend listens to your podcast, not even your parents listen to it. And it's just you, right? And other people like in, in your life are less interested and you start feeling a bit shit. You're like, what? Like I've just put all this work in, like... I'm not doing as well as I thought I was. And like Seth Godin calls this the dip. Um, it's a difficult period to get through. I think what I just realized was that like whatever creative or whatever endeavor you do, you need to make it somehow sustainable to you. I don't mean make it easy. Don't cop out. But what I mean is just build a process that means that you can turn up every week or every day and just deliver. And for me with podcasting, that very much has been like trying to fundamentally break it down into small steps that I can fit around my lifestyle. So like, there's a there's like a guest finding part of it right and that is like the most boring thing like i mean you must have done it where you're like trying to find people to come on this podcast and you're like oh, like you're browsing you're like i can't see anyone then you're like you email them they don't reply it feel if it's like really low bandwidth work but it's really important and i realized that okay i actually need like 10% of my brain to do this so why don't i do this when i'm wasting time already like in the evening if i'm watching like love island or like some like garbage tv like i could just be doing this on the side as well and like be doing both things pretty well so that was one thing like just make it sustainable because if you make it too difficult you're not going to carry on doing it and the name of the game is just stay in the game as long as you can another lesson i learned was that like with a lot of like the successful creators in this space, it's not that they're like particularly good or they're like particularly so much better. It's just they've been in the arena the longest. One advice, I think it was from one of the big American podcasters. He just said, look, there's no secret. I've just been at this for 10 years. Most 50% of podcasts quit after six episodes. So if you've been here for 10 years, you're bound to have some sort of success. So that's basically the lessons I've learned. <laughs> I think you're the seventh episode that I've recorded. Oh, like we're going strong. You're above average. <laughs> there we go. How do you actually divide your time? You said before you work two to three days clinically. How many hours is the podcast taking up in your week at the moment? Yeah, good question. Because I like I track this obsessively. I probably like clinically maybe work like, I don't know, 25, 30 hours, something like that. And then podcasting wise probably takes 15 hours ish uh, and then there's a time for a few other bits but I actually realized so some of the most productive or the most time efficient or the most time I've got the most done is when I was the busiest clinically so like my busiest probably schedule was in when I was in the emergency department not only are you working kind of 50 plus hours in a week but you're also the timing it's like night shifts then like late shift it's like it's really antisocial like on paper, you might actually not be working like a crazy amount. It's just the scheduling, like just it messes you up. But I was incredibly productive. And like now when I have more time, I've noticed like I'm less productive with all this stuff. So like the key lesson for me, like in terms of balancing a clinical workload with other things was that you can sit here and you can find all the hacks. And that's not certainly I've spent years doing that reading like every four hour work week type book that exists. But fundamentally, if you want to get it done, you'll get it done. And that's what I realized. If it's important to you, you'll make it happen. It's like when people start a gym habit, right? And three months in, doctors do this all the time. They're like, oh, I don't have time. And you're like, I don't know. Well, some doctors are ripped and look great. Some doctors don't look so good. And they all basically work the same hours. So certainly there's something about just if it matters to you, you'll make it happen. So in terms of balancing it, I just make it work whenever I can. And probably the downside is that like I don't eat well like I eat monster diet like monster munch and monster energy like it, it just sucks um, I've not got particularly good lifestyle habits etc but like podcasting 
uh, and clinical. They're like important to me. I make it work no matter what. <laughs> I feel like everyone that I've asked that question has had a slightly different approach. It's so interesting to hear everyone's approach. Oh, really? Mm. What, what, what have other people said? Is it like There's different? Definitely been a lot of people that really strictly time block and set aside this time I'm going to be working on this, this time I'm going to be working on that. A lot of that is also just physically juggling so many different things. But a recurring theme is that the more things you're doing, the more hours that you're working really. Like anything that sells itself as a day a week or half time or something ends up being more than what you take on. Oh, interesting. I actually think there's also a different effect that happens, which is like when I've spoken to a lot of like guests who like do a lot and like you read their CV and they've got like six things they're doing right now that are all like full-time jobs. And I realized with those people, there's a way of presenting what you're doing and that, that, you know what I mean? And there's like what you're actually doing and how you present it. And I noticed with a lot of those people, so say in a year, right? In the first two months, they might start something and then they'll put in the initial activation energy and that'll be the hard work. And then after that, they'll just coast and they'll do that like six times. And what I noticed with those people is that like, even though in paper, it seems like they're doing a lot, they actually might be working less than you. They have just started things that then they run, whether they have a team running it or whether it's just, for example, if you said, uh, I'm a podcaster, I'm a doctor and I'm a philanthropist, those three things, you might be like, whoa, like that's so cool. You're doing so much stuff, but actually you're working locum as a doctor. You did a six episode series for your podcast that's now you're not working on at the moment or you pre-recorded them and now you're releasing them so you're actually not working on it right now and you once went to a charity gala last year so you call yourself a philanthropist so like that's one thing i noticed i think a lot of these people i think they're full of shit personally <laughs> all right i think i like the fact that we prioritize we get done what we prioritize yeah absolutely i've seen that come true many times but no one's actually said that <laughs> on this show so I like that one. <laughs> Uh, you talk to a lot of interesting people on your podcast, and I'm sure you spend a lot of time thinking about this as well. But there's a lot of chat at the moment about the future of AI and healthcare and digital health in general and what it means for medical jobs. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're going to get replaced? <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting one. I think it's really obvious, like a really obvious no. Maybe that's hubris. There's this like Oxford University report that lists all the jobs and their risk of being automated. And doctors are actually very low. I think they're like third from the bottom. I think the actual like least likely to get replaced job, I might be wrong on this, but I think it was like choreographer. They thought that the machines would be very unlikely to be able to do that. Although now I think, I, I don't know about that. It seems very obvious to me that looking in history that the job just changes. And so I think definitely the job will look very different when we're like 50, 60 years old to what it does now. If you even look back to 20, 30 years ago, if someone said that your full-time job is going to be like a, I don't know, like an e-marketing consultant, people would be like, what? Or like you make, you know, you dance and you make videos on, on TikTok or whatever it is. There's so many jobs that just you could not explain to your grandparents that we do. I think even podcaster, that would be a difficult one, right? To explain to your grandparents that this is going to be the thing that we do. So I think it seems very obvious that, but if you go a level below that, like the fundamental thing, which is maybe sharing a conversation or sharing knowledge or entertaining that has always been a job right whether it was in like the 60s and 70s which was like big on like i don't know like, like chat shows or like radio shows or whatever it was the function has stayed the same the form might change slightly so i think it seems quite obvious that like our fundamentally people will need 
doctors in some capacity. Maybe we'll change how we work. But I think ultimately, we've got a really good moat, which is super defensible. I mean, we've done like, what, five, six, seven years of medical school and training. Uh, I don't see that being a problem at all. But maybe some adjustment in what our role is, and probably for the better, to be honest. I see it taking out a lot of the jobs that I don't want to do. Like seeing people work on things that write your patient notes for you, interpret your ECGs for you. I mean, they've already been doing that for years, but those sort of things are like, great, would not complain about someone else doing that. No, absolutely. And like some of the companies I'm most excited about are like there's a company called Abridge, which is basically is like an AI tool that sits there whilst you're doing the consultation using LLMs to condense down what was said, basically do your notes for you, right? And write your plan out. So you don't have to come back after and sit there and write everything out. There's companies like Cohelm, which just came out, which is in America, they have this problem of like prior authorizations, PAs, which is when doctors prescribe certain drugs, they have to get approval from the insurers first. That's a lot of paperwork. This is automating that process. So you're absolutely right. I think like a lot of the AI developments I'm seeing, I'm, I'm like, that's making everyone's life better. So I'm like really optimistic about this. You've given us some little hints, but what do you have in store for the future? Where do you think you want to take Big Picture Medical? Is there any other side projects that you're thinking or working on? So I like to like work backwards from like what's the lifestyle I would like and treat it as like a lifestyle design piece. There's people like I really admire and they're maybe not the most obvious people. I think obviously a lot of people admire the types of like Elon Musk's or whatever, like Jeff Bezos. And like that's not particularly a life I think is that much fun. Actually, his life looks pretty fun, but there's elements that I don't like. And then there's like this tier of person I really admire, which is an example of this is Azim Azar. He makes Exponential View. Basically, what he does full time is that he has this really big newsletter called Exponential View, which is read by some of the most influential people in the world. And he just writes about trends in like technology uh, at the intersection of all different industries, right? And I think he writes it on his own and he has one staff member to help with administration. And it has something like, I think, 10,000 paying subscribers. They pay a hundred pounds a year. So he's making a million a year just off that. And he just vibes. He just goes around the world talking to interesting people, thinking he's like a bit of a philosopher type person. And he's completely independent. He doesn't really have a boss. I just think that looks like the coolest life ever. And I think actually most of those people who are like mega, mega rich, I think if they could see that kind of lifestyle, they might actually enjoy it more. So that's what I like look towards doing in terms of more in the nearer future. I want to turn big picture medicine as a podcast into something a bit more serious, more of a media asset, or basically use like the distribution I have to do something useful with it. At the moment, I'm purely in build mode. I'm trying to build distribution. I think I'm at a four out of 10. I want to get it to an eight out of 10. So like, that's my focus right now. And I think that will actually take time. And I think that's like a serious thing that is not as easy as it looks like it might take years. But I think with that distribution, I think there's lots of interesting things you can do. Another example of someone I really look up to is um, Harry Stebbings. I don't know if you know him of 20 Minute VC. He was this 18-year-old kid in London. He's a single-parent household, like has very little like connections, just goes to some regular school in London. And he decided that he wants to be a VC, a venture capitalist. So what he does is he just starts emailing loads of VCs being like, can I interview you on my podcast? And this was before podcasts were cool. So this was like seven or eight years ago. And some really big names just like related to a story. And they're like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. And now he's made 20 Minute VC, his podcast. Uh, I think it's had 3000 episodes. And 
Off the back of that, he's just raised a fund, an investment fund of, I think it was like $75 million. And now he's a full-time investor. And that all, that was like no connection, no like big name education. All it was, was pure grit and using his distribution to do something a bit cooler with that. So those are people I look up to. I don't know exactly where I'll be, but that's the direction I'm trying to travel into. Yeah, incredible. I'm interested to hear about when you first started out in your podcasting, how you actually approached asking people when you didn't really have that name for yourself yet or anything to refer to and say, hey, here's my podcast. Give it a listen if you. I'd like to have you on the show. How did you go about that? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So there's two identities you play or like that I've played. It's actually easier than it sounds is the first thing I'll say. It actually, in some instances, it might actually be beneficial to be that kind of person who basically, I have nothing, will you talk to me? You very much take on like a men- mentee role there. So you're essentially saying to someone like, I'm a sh- like basically a student, I've got nothing. I want to just learn from you. Will you say yes? And actually, I think when you're doing podcasts in like the medical sphere, that works really well. There's a big culture, right? In medicine of like, tutoring or like teaching people like teaching the next generation that is like part of being a doctor right you can't separate that so a lot of doctors are really nice people so i think in that realm it was very easy like i got some really big names like i got um eric topol he's very big in like the ai world i think one of the 10 most cited scientists and doctors in history and he was my 20th episode when i didn't really have anything and i that was just from an email the thing I will say, though, is that the most important thing is the persistence piece. Many people will send one email, less people will send two, less people will send three, and then even less people will find their address and send them a letter. So I will say if you can go like one step above your competition, you will win. The other thing I'll add is analog always beats digital. Like the digital world is cool. It brings so much opportunity. But ultimately, the barrier to entry is too low. These people are flooded with the requests. If you can find cool ways to differentiate yourself by going analog, one thing I do is um, if there's a guest I really want, I write a handwritten letter. I've got like a printed like letterhead, write it in fountain pen. Then I close it. I stamp it using this custom. My friend's got me this custom wax ink seal, which says big picture medicine. And I send it to them. And I've even sent gifts to people, right? So for some people, you have to just, I think there's an element of like the sacrificial lamb where you have to show to them that, okay, there's a 500 people trying to contact me, wanting something from me. I have made a small sacrifice to demonstrate that I am legit. And that does, okay, that's one example. I'm saying the analog thing. But that could also mean that you like researched a lot about them. You're like, hey, so-and-so, this professor, I've read 10 of your latest papers. These are the things I learned. By the way, can I have half an hour of your time? That will always work well. If you can demonstrate that you've put some effort in, that will always work well. I always encourage the sniper rifle approach above these like scattergun approach. Pick specific people, do research into them, send them a custom request and like flatter their ego a bit. One of the ways is researching them. You can compliment them, whatever you want. But just be the sniper rifle that works really well yeah i could write a book in this topic i really feel like there's a lot to it but that's like like high level that's incredible (laughs) i would love to be the recipient of a waxed out letter that would (laughs) definitely convince me i don't think it would take much to convince me but if i wasn't convinced that would seal it (laughs) the last thing that i want to ask you is something that we ask every single person that comes on our show and i want to include what you're currently doing in this question but we ask what you would do if you pursued a career outside of medicine. So I don't want you to say podcasting or anything else that you're currently working on. Do you have any alternate reality careers? That's a good one. Okay. I think in another world, I would probably 
I'd want to be Louis Theroux, basically. I think that looks super, super fun. <laughs> Being like a TV presenter, <laughs> going to like weird places and doing like semi sort of documentary type series. I don't know if that's a cop out, that's too similar to podcasting. But like, I think that would be really, really fun. Not even medical, just like cool stuff. I think that's what I would have ended up doing. Love that. No, I think that's different enough from your current <laughs> podcast. Louis Theroux does do a good podcast, but I'm picturing yeah. the 90s, early 2000s BBC. Yeah, like the. You're right. That, I think through. that was his best That's period. That's a far cry from what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very different from a lot of the other guests that we've had, so it's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's it's a real honor. It's, it's It strokes the ego when someone invites you on and it's cool being on the other side. And uh, yeah, you're doing such a good job. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging 